there are two levels. One is the system level. So any system's goal is to maintain status quo. And I have seen schools where you've got a visionary principal, for example, who has embarked on a three-year project to shift from an individual teacher model to a teacher team-based model. And being almost two years into that work, leaves, another person comes in, and that system goes back to what it was in three weeks. Never underestimate the gravitational force of the existing system. <laughs> yeah. That's why so, they call them institutions. Yes. The goal is to survive in its, in its current state. So that's one piece. Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive in today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, Rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide, The Seven Habits of Highly Transformative Leaders at chriscolbert.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to another episode of Insert Human and a second show with a person who I, I think it's fair to say has become a pretty good friend of mine, even though we've never actually met. And her name is Julie Jungawala. And Julie, welcome back to Insert Human. I'm thrilled to have you back with us. Thank you for having me back, Chris. So Julie, her last show, so you can go on my website or go on any podcast platform and find a show, an interview, conversation between Julie and I titled The Reinvention Mandate. This is sort of the, the I don't know, I'll call it the umbrella of her work in the education space. She's the president of the Academic Leadership Group. She's also director and founder of something called the Institute for Future Learning. She teaches at Harvard, but I think it's fair to say she's all about the importance, arguably the mandate of reinventing the education system. And I am, I'm a big believer in that as well. Julie and I had a conversation a few weeks back about some of her more recent thinking and we'll just sort of pub, subtitle it The Three Truths. And I was so moved by what she was proposing, I asked her back to the show. And so that's where we are today. So, Julie, let's get into it. I know we have a hard stop in about 40 minutes. So tell us about The Three Truths. Sure. So The Three Truths, 
broader umbrella is three truths for the future of education. And the idea for this, the genesis, if you will, as you know, I wrote the first book I wrote, The Human Side of Changing Education, that was published back in 2018. And I remember when I wrote that book, it was and is very invitational, sharing my thoughts on how the system could change and highlighting some great work that's happening and tools and resources that folks would find helpful as they lead this kind of work. And it felt kind of optional, as a school leader, optional if you want to engage in this depth of change work, if you will. And I don't know if it's because of COVID and or I'm getting older and more crankier as a result. I really felt with how just how events have unfolded in the last 18 months that we we need to really make some fundamental changes reflected by these three truths and that our our future depends on it. The future of democracy depends on it. The next level of our existence and thriving as a human race depends on it. And and COVID, I think as well, just you know, highlighted so much that was wrong with the system in general. Everything from teachers being completely overwhelmed and burnt out by the sheer demands that were that were put on them to you know kids sitting in front of screens just brought home a, a, a lot to me. And the three truths as I've identified them are as follows. The first one is the goal of any education system these days is to prepare kids for what is an unknowable future. That's not new information, but I think COVID really helped underscore. We do not know what's happening six months from now. Never mind, you know, once a kindergartner graduates high school. Who knows? The second truth is that it is way past time for systemic equity. And schools should be places of dignity and belonging for all children and all adults. And that is far from the case. We still have a very much a white Western predominant view and execution of education. Mm -hmm. And the third truth is there is so much that we know through research, through neuroscience, uh, the science of learning and development with regards to how human beings learn, develop and grow and regrettably, a lot of it is not reflected in the current system. It's still very much a lecture-based, content control and compliance-oriented model. And there is so much data and research which tells us it needs to be designed very differently. And the system is not designed to support to support that. So those are the three truths. And I reminded of them because you shared them with you a few weeks back and they somebody that is a an amateur observer of the education space a believer in its importance sort of uh, essentiality to the future of our race as you said the couple of questions one is those three truths apply to every level of education primary secondary tertiary like, how do you think about what sort of, are you looking at the whole thing or, or part of it or? The whole thing. Yes. The, the whole thing. thing. The okay. entire system. Yeah. And then I want to start with the first one, the unknowable future. Is that just, is, I'm not even sure how to ask this. Is, is the current system oriented towards a knowable future or no future? <laughs> Wow, I never thought about those terms before. <laughs> you know, I mean, you understand what I'm asking there? I do. I'll tell you where my head goes when you ask that question. As human beings, we are oriented towards mitigating risk. 
we are oriented towards controlling what we can. And as you know, I'm the parent of an almost four-year-old. So I want to help set him up uh, to, be, to thrive as a human being. And for the vast majority of us, there is this path that is being led out where you need to go to school, you need to be successful at school, you need to go to college if you have any hope of a middle-class lifestyle and to thrive. And if you self-select out of that, the best you can hope for is minimum wage. And there is a lot of fear and anxiety with parents in particular, which I fully understand, fully understand that I need my child to go through this system and I need to play the game because otherwise, what are the options? And it's, we're trying to control what we can. But if you look at the, and you've probably seen the data around the cost of a college education and the increase or lack thereof of the average wage, it's like this, that those lines are diverging at an alarming pace. So schools, for the most part, are institutions of knowing. They're not actually institutions of learning. And some of the best educational models I've seen, they're not, they're not saying we're preparing kids for an unknowable future. What they're saying is we are, we are, through the learning process, enabling our kids to start solving real-world problems now. So they, they are building the skill sets, the skill, skills, knowledge, and habits of mind, so that when they do graduate into whatever world they graduate into, they have a flexible and transferable set of skills and a very different way of being in the world so that they are prepared for what is an unknowable future. There still is some, you know, inherent in the question is some sense of, can we at least get some version of the future and then equip kids to be successful mm-hmm. within it? We can't. What do we know we need as adults to be successful? I go back to Robert Keegan's work in adult development, where he talks about the shift between socialized mind to self-authoring mind to transformational mind. Mm-hmm. The reality is, and this is according to Keegan's research, the majority of adults are either stage three socialized mind, stage four, or somewhere in between. And if you live long enough, you might have a hope of getting to transformational mind. The education system actively perpetuate socialized mind. If we were to go way back and and ideally start the threads of this in kindergarten, strengthening the threads in middle school, strengthen them even more in high school to help kids be much more self-authoring, then maybe would we have more transformational mind folks age 40, 50, as opposed to age 70, 80. So the adult development framework is always like a backdrop to how I think about this. And the key piece I think is for schools to reorient themselves to help kids be much more self-authoring. And the challenge is along with that comes a release of control. And on the part of the school. Yes. Yes. And compliance. And believe me again, I'm mother of an almost four year old. I fight a daily battle with myself around compliance. And I am endeavoring really hard not to have the words because I said so (laughs) come out of my mouth too often because I want to raise Teddy to be independent and to think for himself and to be curious. And I'm realizing the extent to which my own behaviors are so ingrained that run counter in many ways to setting up that kind of environment for him. Yeah. You know, my maybe overly simplified translation of some of that is around you know, I write a lot about 
the changes in the world and, and have arrived at this simple idea that for the world to change, to catch up with technology, to get ahead of some of the challenges we have, it means we have to change. Like we, we are the world. We, you know, human nature and mother nature combined are the world. And yet our system, our education system doesn't really focus on our adaptive capacities. I mean, is that similar to what you're saying? Like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't teach us self-agency. It gives us, as you said, I love how you separated knowledge or you distinguish between knowledge and learning. Mm. I think the system is hardwired to impart knowledge. Yes, disseminate knowledge, not right. set the enabling conditions for deep learning. Right. And the other thing that you and I have talked about that, you know, you read more and more about today is, is, is employers are realizing some level of responsibility at teaching their employees. And, you know, the good news is they're, that more and more of them are stepping up to do that. The bad news is kind of like the education system they came from, their orientation appears to be towards knowledge, not necessarily towards learning. In other words, teaching functional skills versus adaptive skills, as an example. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes, we're breaking out unhated agreement here, Chris. That, that was part of the, the thinking that Jenny and I had when we started the reinvention mandate work, which uh, we're reading so many articles pre-COVID on the importance of and the need, the, you know, the clarion call to you know, reskill, de-skill, upskill the workforce and nice strategic frameworks on how to do that. But nowhere there were we seeing any mention of the fact that if we're saying that we want to really establish these kinds of learning environments, we're dealing with messy human beings. And how do we enable human beings to change, to learn and to grow on a continual basis for the rest of your life? Right. And too many folks have been scarred by their educational experience. I remember working with, this is like a 19-year-old woman, uh, some initial coaching work that I was doing. And we did a first session where we were doing a deep dive on her goals and a few bits and pieces. And she hadn't been very successful at school. And she said, Julie, this wasn't like school at all. This was so much fun. And she said, what was that? <laughs> said, well, that, that was learning. That was learning about yourself. You know, that wasn't learning. Hmm. The metal model around learning was I am sitting in a classroom and there's right. a lecture taking place and I'm right. not getting a fair part of it and I feel lost and I feel left behind. Every single educator that I've met is a mission-oriented person and many of them, the vast majority of them, that is stripped out of them because of the system. So there needs to be a conversation, I think, about how do we start to unleash the adaptive capacity of teachers Right. To help them get back to what they love. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's such a wonderful construct for the audience to contemplate, which is in order for one to be adaptive, the other, whoever, whether the other is a teacher or the other is a parent, they have to be adaptive too. That you can't approach this in a discrete, you know, you know, it's all connected, right? Like, mm -hmm. And, and I was going to ask you a 
question about truth number one before we moved on to truth number two, which is if you did have a room of educators, conference room or, or whatever, a meeting room of educators, and you you shared truth number one, and if they all nodded in agreement, meaning they they were like, yes, that is what we must shift towards or reorient the system towards. What do you think is in the what's what what is what is in the way of that? from a actually making progress towards it, recognizing that these systems have been in place for decades and sometimes centuries. It's not going to be an overnight or even over year undertaking, but what have you seen that's, that's the biggest stumbling block to that reorientation towards an unknowable future? There are two levels. One is the system level. So any system's goal is to maintain status quo. And I have seen schools where you've got a visionary principal, for example, who has embarked on a three-year project to shift from an individual teacher model to a teacher team-based model. And being almost two years into that work, leaves, another person comes in, and that system goes back to what it was in three weeks. Never underestimate the gravitational force of the existing (laughs) system. (laughs) Yeah. That's why so, they call them institutions. Yes. The goal is to survive in its, in its current state. So that's one piece. The second piece is, I believe, and will forever believe in an individual's capacity to act. So I've met phenomenal teachers over the years. I'm thinking of um, a good friend, Natalie. Whenever Common Core standards came in and folks were saying, well, how, you know, how do I do this? And this doesn't make any sense. Natalie's always been that kind of teacher who's preparing her kids for an unknowable future. She said, well, I, I, just, I just do what I do. And then I work with the standards into the back. I'm not starting with the standards. I'm starting with what I want these kids to know, learn, and be able to do by the end of the year and the experiences I want them to have in my classroom. And then I'll work the standards in. So there are just incredibly smart, gifted educators out there, too often they have to work on the periphery of the system, though. Right. I would love right. the periphery to come to the center. Let's talk about systemic equity, truth number two. Well, let's actually start with this. We'll talk a little bit about what that means, a little more about what that means, and then I want to talk about the solution. <laughs> or, or again, if everybody nodded politely, like, yes, that's where we should go. What is standing in the way of going? Is it the same, the same set of barriers in terms of uh, truth number one, or is it a different dynamic? This feels like a different dynamic. And I'll preface this by saying, I'm shocked by my, by my ignorance in this area. So not, it was in, it was only on the periphery of my vision, pre-George Floyd. And something in me shifted when I saw that policeman's knee on his neck and to see a man be murdered like that. And knowing for a fact it would never have happened to a white man. And I attended a conference, summer of 2020, called Dismantling White Supremacy in the Classroom by a wonderful educator called Joe Truss. And I still remember the start of that conference. Normally, at the start of a workshop, as a facilitator, you're cultivating a safe place 
and you're talking about you know, norms and safe norms and all the rest of it. And I have done that for 20 years. And Joe started with, this is not a safe place. This is going to be a brave place. And that really struck me as, wow, we need to move from safe to brave. And that cuts to the core of A, what's possible, and B, what frightens the you-know-what out of us because we're being brought face-to-face with ourselves. You know, I had the exact same experience in I'm on the was on the board of Kate's, my wife's profit now and there. And when the whole George Floyd thing happened, we got together as a board and started talking about what we were going to do. And we we're going to issue a policy statement. And there's one by name of Charlotte Jones, who's African-American on the board, who listened to the white people sitting around the table talking about issuing the statement, the policy statement in response to this horrifying thing. And she was amazing. And and she finally spoke and she said, you know, that's all fine and everything. But really what what the best thing you can all do is to expose yourself to the other. The other, the person that is not like you, she didn't use black, she didn't use Asian, she didn't use any terms. She said, putting yourself in the uncomfortable position of being with people that aren't like you and recognizing their reality through their lens versus your own white supremacist. She didn't say it that way. I'm saying it that way. Mm-hmm. But that was my moment of like, I've been afraid my whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that idea of not a safe place, but a brave place that we are making safe. I mean, we're not ignoring the need for a sense of safety, but we're walking into it with courage and a willingness to work hard at changing how we think or how we feel or our natural biases or ingrained bias, you know, so I completely get where you're, where you're coming from. It's very similar to sort of what I've been going through. And then I'm trying to work on it on a daily basis. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's not a flicking of a switch proposition. That's for sure. No, no. So, so on the solution side of that, like, I mean, is, I mean, is that the work to be done is actually at a hyper, at, I keep using the word hyper a lot lately, hyper individual practitioner level. It can't be done at a systems level. It's got to be through the actions of, of, of every, of every teacher, of every administrator, of every participant, like of every parent. Like, how do you get there? You know? I don't know. I don't know is the short answer. I think we need to listen to each other more. Yeah. Yeah. And walk a mile in the other shoes, as you just mentioned. Yeah, I I think, yeah, I agree with that. I think. um, And we're two white people talking about that. About that. What, What do we know? We don't know anything, right? I think the other thing, which sounds, it all sounds so trite because there's two white people talking about it, is just, it's just the idea being open. Like, you, you know, you mentioned earlier Western bias as part of the systemic thing. So it's not just a racial thing. It's, it's, it's a cultural thing. It's a, it's, it's a developed world thing, a European thing, whatever. And you know, I think part of this is 
again, this is something I'm trying to do at my ripe old age of just trying to let go of all my preconceived notions, which is brutally hard. But, you know, I don't know that I know anything. I don't know that what I what I've grown up believing is actually true or valid or necessarily the best course. You know, and and not knowing is a good place to be. Yeah, but it's so antithetical to our human condition of we must know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's back to the education I system. I plan to fix that. Yeah. <laughs> the education system says your job is to have knowledge. Mm-hmm. Your job is to know. Success mm-hmm. is predicated on how much you know. And to not know is risk. To mm-hmm. not know is vulnerability. And you're like, maybe that's all not true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's do it to number three. Because I know you got to go human-centric, I wrote human-centric approach to the development of the curriculum, the everything is oriented towards the human. I'm not sure if I, is that right? Is that fair? Or is that like a little off? It's the fact that we've got so much, we've got a body of research that tells us how human beings learn and grow and how to establish nurturing environments for learning to take place. and. And the reality is that that's not reflected in the system at large. Small example, the the neuroscience, mind-brain education, we know the importance of rest and renewal. Yet kids are back-to-back lessons. Recess is being made ever, ever shorter. Physical ed and arts being stripped out of the curriculum. The whole concept of cramming more content into a brain that can't actually take it, but yet we'll, we'll double down on that. Sounds like corporate America. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing, right? You go from one meeting to one meeting to one meeting to one meeting. You're on your phone the whole time. It's all about transaction and va- and movement of information. You're not left any time for contemplation, no. for consideration for relax. I mean, right. It's the same dynamic. We're, we just replicated ourselves in the education system or vice versa. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of research. This is not some, some abstract on the fringe of mainstream thinking, right? No. I mean, another example, I love Richard Boyatz's work. His most recent book is called Helping People Change, Coaching with Compassion. And he has been working for decades, neuroimaging, MRIs, showing how you've got you know, the positive emotional attractor, the negative emotional attractor, that you need to be cycling into that more positive state anywhere, I think, from three to six times more than the negative state in order to prime the human to learn and to grow. But if you're constantly cycling in and out of that NEA state, that compliance state, the most you'll get is compliance, service level learning. And again, when you think of a typical environment, are you really triggering in the school system or in the corporate environment, the ideal self? Are you helping the human being imagine their ideal self are you tethering whatever it is you're doing right now, how it links to that ideal self? Can they see themselves? Can they see the possibilities? Do they have the support? Do they have 
clear sense of where they are right now and what that gap is. Is the learning agenda made explicit? And does it have an orientation of experimentation as opposed to try something, oh, that didn't work, oh, then I'm a failure, you know, then I'll never, you know, achieve what I want to achieve or be who I want to be, but rather, okay, I tried that, it didn't work. Of course it didn't. First time I tried it, okay, what did I learn? Okay, don't do that, do this, do more of this, less of that. Okay, let me try again. The pursuit of mastery is predicated on experimentation. Back to the education system, the goal when you hand in a paper is to get an A. Right. Uh, the first time. And I still remember a fantastic class called Educating for the Unknown with Dave Perkins at um, Harvard's Ed School. And what I loved about that class was I had between three to five opportunities to resubmit a paper. And I still remember that first paper that I submitted and then the fifth one. You would think a different person wrote them. Wow. And that was a matter of weeks. The only difference was I got a chance to try again and I got really helpful feedback. So of the three truths, well, what's your, what's, how are you, how are you promulgating these truths? <laughs> more of our promulgate. <laughs> <laughs> Which I haven't used that word in a long time. No, what's, what's the agenda for the truths? Like what's the, what's the, what's, what's the, or, or here's another one. I'm a, I'm a parent. What you just said resonates with me. I have it, my own, my own Teddy. I have my own child. I like, what do, what, what can any of us do in support of this work? Because I don't, I don't know that anybody listening would refute the logic of mm -hmm. any of the three of these. I mean, I, you can't, you know, it, they all so clearly pass a test of, of humanness and reasonableness. And of course, so what can any of us do in support? of this work? So thinking about how do you, how do you take these three truths and do something with them? At the intersection of the three truths, I talk about five key decisions for any system of education. Five key decisions are five key questions. And I'm borrowing here from uh, Dave Perkins with the first three. The first one is what's worth learning. Given those three truths, what's worth learning? Second is, how is it best learned? Again, given those three truths. How do we know it has been learned? The fourth one is, how do we unleash teacher talent, develop teachers, given these three truths? And then number five is, how do I and we lead the change? So those five key decisions or key questions in a word uh, for each are curriculum, pedagogy, assessment, teacher development, and change leadership. Got it. And if I'm a school leader, I am thinking of all five and how I can mobilize a community towards action. If I'm a parent, I'm thinking, okay, what's my role here? And I don't think I need to be prescriptive in that. I think parents would have a sense of where they would start and what they, what they might be able to do. Uh, it's been thought for a while that the third rail of education is curriculum. And we're seeing that right now with critical race theory. But if we can get beyond the bifurcation of this and at a high level, anytime you ask a community of people, 
what what do you want your child or your children to know and be able to do? It's some version. I want them to be kind. I want them to be able to think clearly. I want them to be independent. I want them to be self-sufficient. I want them to be mindful of others. I want them to be respectful and and community-oriented. I want them to be creative and to be able to build something. There is much more that binds us than divides us. Mm. And anytime I've worked with communities helping them distill skills, knowledge, and habits of mind, there's usually a consensus pretty quickly. And then how's it best learned? This is where I think we need to start really privileging the voice of educators. And if I had a magic wand, I would love that every single teacher starts with a six-figure salary. The, the art and the science of teaching, whenever you see a master or a mistress, <laughs> uh, like a mastery-level teacher, it is like poetry in motion. Yeah. And that takes... Yeah. That takes time and that takes very specific development. And I think we need to compensate our teachers in a very different way than we currently are. And then the change leadership side of things, this is where it comes to mobilizing a community. But if you start with asking the community what's worth learning yeah. and you help educate them as to how it's best learned, and then you take the brave move of t- saying like standardized tests are the floor, not the ceiling. There is great work out there like the Mastery Transcript Consortium that are helping schools and districts rethink how, yeah. how we assess learning, assessment for as an of learning. So there's a lot that can be done and, and we all have a part to play in it. I think the idea, it's, I love the five questions and, and their, their simplicity and their clarity. And I think the idea of starting with what is worth learning is a question for all of us. You know, that's not just an academic question. That's a parent question. That's a human member of the human race question. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and I've asked this question of young parents, like what is your intention for your child? Meaning what is it you want him or her to learn? Mm-hmm. The capacities, the mindsets, the behaviors. And, you know, so for the audience, what, you know, there's one to do at this is just pondering what is worth learning. And mm-hmm. I think maybe the second to do is, part of the community of change idea is to talk to your child's teachers about it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and share, share your, your answer to the question and, and get their answer to the question. And, you know, my guess is there's going to be a fair amount of alignment, but it really is. I think the most important question we can ask, which is probably why it starts. It's number one on the, on the yes, live list. Everything else. If you, if you start asking, well, you know, how do we assess this? How do we assess learning or, you know, how do we develop teachers or, you know, how do we lead change? It all goes back to what's worth learning. And if it's, and if those, if the answers to those questions aren't grounded in an answer to what's worth learning, you're chasing your tail. Yeah. So I would need to let you go. Ways for the audience to get in touch with you, get your book, just give us a quick, how can they do that? Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn, Julie Jungawala. There's only one of me. And Twitter at Julie Margreta, M-A-R-G-R-E-T-T-A. And the Institute's website is the T-H-E-IFL.org. Great. Well, Julie, thank you for coming back and spending more time with me. And I look forward to seeing you very soon. And, you know, your work, I think, is 
it's just really important work. Like, you know, and I know we agree that the only way we save ourselves from ourselves is do a better job of, of educating the, the future. And I think from the reinvention mandate to the three truths, it's all very resonant with me and very, I think ultimately would be very helpful to, uh, to a lot of people. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.